Hello and welcome to Behind the Bearcat. This is the podcast where the Northwest Missouri State University Career Services Office chats with Northwest faculty, staff, students, alumni, and friends to hear about their career journeys, how they got to where they are, and how they became Bearcats. I'm Northwest Internship Coordinator Travis Klein. And I am Hannah Christian, Assistant Director of Career Services here at Northwest. And on our podcast today, the late, the great, the Tyler Taps, Dr. Tyler Taps, uh, graduated as a Bearcat in 2004, 2006, and then came back to teach. Um, he is a professor in the, oh, oh boy, I'm already going to mess up, <laughs> Department of, of something. Science, <laughs> School of Health Science and Wellness. There I looked go. it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's a tag team sort of process for us to kind of get that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, welcome, Dr. Tyler Taps. Thank you. Thank you I for being a guest. Yes. Yeah, You're the assistant you. director of the School of Health Science and Wellness, right? Yes. Yep. Yep. For he has multiple titles. That's right. Multiple hats. We'll, we'll get into some of those. Yes. <laughs> All right. So Coon Rapids, Iowa. I do not know where that is. Uh, so please north. tell me. Tell me. It's north of here. It's southwest Iowa. It's a very small town. It was actually a, um, you know, for Iowa standards as far as athletics and, and size, it's a 1A. It's really, really small. So I always tell people it's about, about an hour from Des Moines, 20 minutes from Carroll, and that kind of gives people a navigational beacon Historically, it's the home of the Garst Farm. Roswell Garst revolutionized the agricultural industry there. So the original Garst house is there. That also helps people a little bit. So yeah, yeah small. It's southwest of. Uh, it's about two hours from here. So yeah. All right. So uh, first question, always a good one. What, Doctor Taps? What was what was your first job? And it was not like your parents, you know, forcing you into labor. Like your first actual real job. Detasseling corn in in Coon Rapids. Yep. So every summer, technically, I think you were supposed to be 14, but I can remember at 12 years old helping my dad. So detasseling is one of those things where you don't really, it's not like an eight to five. It's just when the corn's ready, you're ready. And so we, my brother and I and my dad would go out and kind of my first real taste of manual labor. And it, when you grow up in a place like that, it's all related to corn. And so, yeah, my first real, real job was detasseling corn in the summers. And from there, you know, I always had jobs. I worked um, as a busboy dish, uh, doing dishes and at a, uh, a restaurant. I was just thinking about this the other day for some reason called Memories and More and did that. Um, I worked at a Breakpoint, kind of a convenience store. Were you a clerk or – you know, yeah, a little like bit the behind of, the so like, register prison. Yep. And so because of school and sports, um, I would open up my, to get my hours. I'd open up the store at like 4 a.m. And there would always be people waiting for you there. And mm-hmm. so I can always remember on Sunday mornings, I would usually, especially in the winter, I, I wrestled on su- Saturday more um, at tournaments. And then on Sunday, you'd get up at like four and be sore and tired. And there's always, there was one guy named Louie always standing there with a cigar in his mouth at four o'clock, wondering why you weren't there to open the door right away. Get the coffee on, get the cinnamon rolls going, get the oven going. I think always, people, always worked. Always you worked. know, people maybe who aren't from small towns underestimate the importance of the convenience store in the small town. Like it's like the hub, you know, kind of the place. It's a grocery store. It was, we had a, a kitchen where we bake pizzas. So Friday nights, everybody, nobody wants to cook. So you were making pizzas, nope. burgers, gizzards were very popular at the time. So you'd fry them up. Um, yeah, it's a restaurant, bar, meeting they, place, uh, coffee one place. One point there was a laundromat. I'm not kidding. Connected to it, so maybe <laughs> out of my timeline. But yeah, small town. You need something, you go get it from from the break point. Unfortunately, it burned down after, after I had left. But hmm. small towns. So okay, so did you work there in high school? Yep, I worked there, and let's see. I 
I was really involved in a lot of extracurriculars in high school. So that was my job. Yep. I, I had a great boss. Her name was Deb. She was awesome. She was really flexible with, with our schedules and, and helping us to get hours and, and things like that. And in the summers I worked for Garseed or ICI Seeds or Syngenta, whoever owned it at the time, working out uh, in the fields, you, you kind of move your way up from detasseling to contract foreman where you oversaw a certain group of fields and then you hired everybody else to do the detasseling and you monitored that. So I did that in a crew for a while. And then one year I was what was called an area supervisor, which was kind of another level. And I did that while I was in student here at Northwest. Uh, and I actually started my academic career, my freshman year at Iowa State. And then I transferred to Northwest. And then that time I joined the military. So my work kind of went into that type of range. So so did you join the military while you were at, at Iowa State and I then did. transferred here? Can you yep. kind of talk so, to us about that? Yeah. So my first year at Iowa State was not very successful, to be honest with you. Um, I was a first generation student. I actually took a class with my mom. One of the first classes I took in college at a community college was with my mom. What I know now of, of the academy and working in higher ed and the system and how big it is, I always kind of makes me chuckle that my first experience really that first gen experience was shared with my mother. So, but I went there and it was a little probably too big for me compared to where I came from. And not so much that I had expectations of anything different, but I didn't really know what I was looking for in a college when it was too late. You know, I didn't, we didn't, I didn't do visits. I didn't have any of that. You know, I didn't do any of that stuff before I went. And it was just in, in my family, you just went to college. So um, a lot of people went to Iowa State. So I went to Iowa State for a year. I was a business major. Didn't really know what it meant. Didn't really, you know, I didn't get much out of my gen eds. Um, didn't really like it. And so my brother was in the military, had joined the military, and was wanting to be a pilot. And so I, I didn't know if college was for me. So I joined the Iowa Air Guard just kind of as a backup plan because I thought, I don't know that I want to spend all this money and go here. So I joined. By the time I went through all the basic training and tech school for my, my what I was doing for my job, I thought maybe I would use those skills and that's what I would do. And then I decided while I was in the military and I was working in Des Moines, I was also working at the Garcede plant in town in the middle of the winters. And what I started to notice was, and this is not a knock on the people working there, is that everybody there was in their 40s, but they look 60. And in the middle of winter in southwest Iowa, it's cold. And I was in grain bins pushing corn that's freezing cold with an auger tied to a uh, hydraulic lift that would you push a button and it wheels in the chain. And I do that for eight to 10 hours a day, starting at five in the morning till. And I remember just thinking to myself, like, I, I, there's got to be something else for me. And so I called Northwest one day, got my transcripts over here, and I was right on the edge of whether I could be accepted. And there was a, a wonderful person by the name of, uh, what was her name? Anyway, it would have been Evan Clubfield Deb. She worked in, anyway, she worked in admissions and she said, I, we're going to let you in. So whether that was normal or not, I always felt like it was an opportunity. And so I transferred to Northwest. And Do you remember how you heard about it? Uh, yeah, I had a friend I worked in the fields with and I played baseball with in high school. Two of those friends and, and, and a girl I went to high school in my class actually came to school here and would always come back and talk about how much they loved it. And it was just far enough away that, you know, you could disconnect from where you grew up, but it was close enough if you needed to go home being two hours away. It was a different state. So I thought for me where I was at um, and I had a little more money in my pocket because of my military experience and been working full time that I, um, I, I came here. Go there was a it. little stint in there too where I worked at the buckle, but that was kind of a dark time. <laughs> no, I love that job, but got my first taste of sales anyway. 
<laughs> so you were selling jeans. I was selling and anything for and- commission, Hannah, and not <laughs> letting you get to the back of the store to the front. Like we're fully aware of the, we get it. Yeah. But yeah, so I came to school here and my dad brought me down for orientation and um, it seemed small enough and I just kind of fit in. I got to get my own apartment off campus. At that point I was being alone. It was really good for me, for my studies and I had a different focus and so were you still a business major? Talk to me about your academic no. choices. Yeah, <laughs> I had no clue what I wanted to do. So I go in and that day I met with um, an advisor and it was Deb. We know now as Dr. Deb Toomey on campus in the business department. Phenomenal person and, and educator. But at the time she was uh, in, in admissions or an advisor and she asked me a bunch of questions. And to be honest, she said, what are things that interest you? And I'll never forget. I said, you know, I I don't know. I'm really good at sports and I like numbers and and that's always kind of been interesting for me. So she put me in foundations of rec with Ferg, Dr. Ferguson. And I don't know, I just kind of clicked. Most of my gen eds transferred from the uh, community college of the air force from, from just training. So I was fortunate to come in and directly take classes in the program it was not only the faculty at the time, uh, but the cohort I was in, I, I was in a really great cohort of people and it was fun and we kind of connected and I still, you know, half the athletic department and the coaches here were in that cohort and it just kind of worked out um, timing wise for, for that. But yeah, so I got into those classes and never really looked back and that led me into the same all the way through my master's, my doctorate, all of my degrees, which is kind of rare in our professional area that every, every, all of my training professional experience has been in the same field, recreation, parks, mostly I would call it administration, parks, administration. So what does parks administration entail? Uh, There are so many levels. Um, What I like about our profession is that it's trendy and that it changes a lot. So it's not very consistent. There are a lot of consistencies. We deal with the same thing that most publicly or tax funded agencies deal with like budget cuts and tax increases and loss of property tax. And our field, this is horrible to say, but we traditionally thrive better during recession and depression. Those time periods were really good for us economically because people need stuff to do in their free time. That's cheap, right? That's free and cheap, right? Yeah. And so a lot of my background is in more of the nonprofit. So when I was at Oklahoma State, my first real job after my doctorate, I was a faculty member there, but my mentor was the executive director of what was called OTRAC, the Oklahoma Tourism Recreation Assistance Center. What we did is we procured contracts and grants to do kind of, I say, I always used to say it was off the wall stuff that wasn't normal that would have to go out the bid that, that you couldn't just find somebody to do. Like, for example, we would need archaeology surveys. We have to hire an archaeologist pay them to not dig up anything, which is like giving a three-year-old a a popsicle and telling them don't eat it (laughs) to an archaeologist, right? They want to touch everything. But because, you know, for example, all the parks in Oklahoma, it's a very high Native American artifact geographical location in our country. So we were like, before we want to put a bathroom here. So before we put an ADA bathroom on a, you know, Indian heritage site, we want to make sure that it's safe to do. And so we want you to not dig anything we want you to do. So there's a lot of off the wall stuff, side stuff. Well, that type of contract is probably 70 grand, right? So somebody's looking to pay for this, but our job was kind of the middleman or middle person where we would connect them and for a fee. And so we operated contracts upward of, um, we had the contract for what was called the resource management plan. So basically we went through every single park and we would do a complete audit basically of the finances, the environmental scan, um, what's in it. We would GPS and GIS everything in the park using uh, ArcGIS software with a third party that we would hire. We do uh, 3D flyover radar 
Um, we wow. would build 3D maps. We had a printer that would build an entire 3D map of the park to the point where you could get on an app and say, I want a tent camp at this site and let's simulate two inches of rain. Where would the sun be at three o'clock? Will it be dry? Will it be wet? It would basically tell you all that. It was really, really a big, big project going on. So anyway, my mentor, he retired and kind of just gave me the rain. So I became the executive director of, of O-Track in that last two years that I was at OSU. And so most of my job was focused on running that and working with the board and hiring GAs. And we were doing good work. So, Can you go back to the military aspect of that? So yeah. what was your job in the military and, and how did you approach that and what did it teach you? So I was an F-16 uh, fuel systems apprentice by definition. And what that means is I was a mechanic on the fuel system of an F-16, which burns JP-8, so, and it uses hyd hydrazine, and there's a lot of different type of chemicals, and basically what we did is we, we were the owner of that system that kept the jet running, which is very important because that's a single-engine jet, so there's no backup, <laughs> you know, if that one goes out, and I know it's fuel-related, but there's, you know, there's five fuel pumps, there's a lot of different things we could go over, but that... And there were three levels to that. There was a level three, a level five, and a level seven. And so kind of as a journeyman along that line, level three is basic level, level five, you get a little bit of ownership, level seven is kind of a mastery. So I finished at a level seven, got out after six years as a staff sergeant, um, had multiple deployments stateside, a few overseas in the Middle East. Um, and so great experiences, great people, really learned in the whole military thing, uh, time management, and things I think I was lacking before I thought I had, I had discipline for the things I had passion for. Um, I'm never late for meetings now, and it's just a residual of those things. And I think it, for me, it's a form of respect. And so I know that doesn't, that's, I don't expect everybody to have that, but that, that was huge for me at the time of my life, which really helped me get back into school. I was not a great student in college, but what I realized from those experiences that I didn't have to be, that I could, I could outwork my incompetencies and they will catch up by showing up and, and doing those things I could make up for the weaknesses I really learned to focus on my strengths and not focus on making my weaknesses better and I was very fortunate to learn that at a very young age which has served me extremely well so far that's some good insight I think mm -hmm. there for everybody learn as soon as you can what you're really good at and what you're not and then just don't focus on the things you're not good at <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, people, they argue with me and, and I go, man, I tell you what, in all the leadership schools I've been in now at 38, you've heard them all the time. Every single person who's pretty successful and moves, moves the needle on things that need to be moved will say, if you have weaknesses that need to be done, you find people who have those as strengths because you'll, you'll lose them trying to make yourself perfect in every way. And it's just impossible. And I, I learned that a long time ago that I just, like, I'm not an analytical person. Um, I'm really social, but I'm good at connecting with people and I can find analytical people um, for whatever. We <laughs> and make need. them your friends. <laughs> and make them your, right. And not in a use, like use them way, but in a genuine way where you're like, together we are better and we will transform each other. And it's not transactional. And it's, and I had some great travel that people probably didn't get to have at that age. And I didn't get to have homecomings at school. I was always gone working and, and, but my experiences there were my, you know, I was in Ireland for two days because a plane broke and I was in, I served my country in the Middle East during a wartime in, in multiple places. And, and so as scary as those were, those were experiences. Like I talk about this with the coronavirus all the time. I go, I've been in scarier situations. So a lot of people haven't, and I understand that, but you, the way you respond to fear is, you know, you gain experience by going through it and 
you learn to be calm and you learn to make rational decisions and you try to not let isolation breed fear. You try to, you, you become aware of, and that's training. It didn't just come up because I was in it, but like you, you go through trainings and you learn and, and you practice and you practice and you practice. And so I was very fortunate there. So let's pretend like I'm a student listening to this podcast and I'm not real sure what I'm that great at. And maybe it's not obvious what do you think, so as far as figuring out your strengths or figuring out what you're good at, if it's not something that's an, at an obvious level, how, how would you recommend that I go about looking for that? The best feedback is feedback from outside. I always ask people, that would be my advice, is when you're in groups or when you're working with faculty or when you're working with your boss, ask for evaluation. I really believe that we under-evaluate people, and a lot of times in, in, a, in professional settings, it becomes a formality that's just, you know, a check and a balance, and I always tell people to challenge a real evaluation. If you're doing everything right, I have a hard time believing that you're truly being evaluated. Now, that doesn't mean you need to be reprimanded or, you know, you, know, you need a, a letter in your file or anything like that, but it will quickly reveal the things that become natural versus the things that aren't. Like I didn't know being social was a strength because it was so easy for me until I, I started to listen to people talk about or the way I would connect with people and we'd get things done. It took somebody a lot smarter than myself to tell me the, your best skill is to motivate people to get things done and they want to do it for you. And I, I didn't even know that was a thing in a sense because it's so easy. So that's your skill. And so sometimes I always look at it the opposite way is the way that you ask the question. If they don't know is that sometimes everybody has skills and everybody has some things that they're naturally good at. And maybe they've been developing them for years and just didn't know about it. And so I don't ever like it when people are like, I don't have any skills. Actually, there are things that everybody has that they do better than me and you. And, and there are things you do better that I can't. And there are things that I do that, you know, that's every single person. And especially with students because they're so receptive, you know, that's something I was working in higher ed every day you have a chance to impact somebody in a positive or negative way and they'll remember it forever right because they're so impressionable and this is the environment that you do that in so I don't know if that really answers your question but it's feedback from other people like absorb be go get the feedback and use that information I think that's a key thing to pull out is if you're in an internship or in a job about going and asking because people are afraid to do that. So that kind of combines those two. Like, I know it's scary, but if you want to grow, like you're going to have to approach that head on and you're going to have to go ask for some, some real feedback or you're going to have to do things that you think like, maybe I'm going to do this because I think this is my strength. And then I'm going to accept that feedback as well, maybe you did a really bad job of that, you know, <laughs> or, or, you know, maybe it's something completely different, but sometimes you either have to step out and take some action, or you have to be willing to go to other people and really draw out that feedback from them. I think. Yeah. Two big pieces of advice I've gotten in my life that are, is that helps to flip how you view some things. You know, y'all, you always try to look, I try to look at everything from both sides, not from a right or a wrong, but like there's a, like a tube on each end. Right. And so one is, when I talk to people, I go, when you're looking at where you want to be or who you want to be like, finding a mentor is important. Look at somebody you want to be like, and you can start with their job and go, what were the things they had to do or did to get into that position? And you can backtrack that and, and just know that there's no shortcut. You know, you're going to need to do those things and maybe more because you're a little different and maybe less because you're a little different, but you're not going to be able to circumvent those things because there's the way 
And then there's a shortcut and shortcuts don't pan out the higher up you want to move, which leads me to the second one. I always asked it, where do you raise your hand if you want to be the boss someday? And everybody raises their hand, not fully understanding what that means. And so the advice I always give them is if you want to get into a position that you think you want to be in, you need to stop thinking about it as a job title because you can't even define it. But if you start answering questions like what are problems I want to solve for the agency that I'm in? And you start to build a knowledge and some competency and some skills and some resiliency and some failures related to those solutions, you'll find yourself accidentally in positions with the ability to contribute to solving them. And you won't care what is the title next to your name because you're serving. I couldn't even tell you right now like what all my titles are, to be honest. <laughs> but I could tell you all the different things we're doing to try and align these arrows with where our strategies are going. How did you get into higher ed? I would imagine, you know, starting with recreation, teaching probably wasn't on your radar when you first started that. That's a good question. What, what got you back into higher, or what got you to get that master's and go into higher ed instead I, of planning parks? I did an internship with my undergrad at a physical therapy rehab place, and I got a job offer. And this is where my parents were so much more uh, supportive than probably most first-generation college parents. And it was for, I got offered a job for $24,600 summer of 2005. And I almost took the job. My dad's like, do you want to make that kind of money? Of course, remember to me, 25 grand was like, I'm in rolling in the dough at this point. Right. <laughs> and so, and he goes, but more importantly, do you want to be living here? And it was in Carroll, Iowa. Just nothing gets Carol, but where I was in my life at 22, just where you want to be. Once you settle down here, it's going to be really hard for you to be mobile. And he literally said that to me one night and it kind of, I said, I'm not ready for that. So I went into grad school because I got, a, I got a GA and I thought, I'll get some good experience. I got to work for the city as a GA doing their health programming, which was kind of new and rare. This is kind of a different type of GA. And then part of that, I got to do actual rec programming for the Missouri Academy. And so I was doing both, which was really good experience, which helped get me into doctoral school. And so I went into now my boss and, and colleague, and we, we shared leader. He's the director, Terry Long, and then I act as assistant director, we talked about, in the School of Health Science and Wellness. He was my advisor at the time, and I talked to him about going into getting my doctorate, and I wanted to get into more of the research. So that was kind of my driving factor. So I went to OSU, and the reason I went there is because I went to a national conference in San Antonio, and I interviewed with everybody, and they were the only one to have the actual faculty sit down with me. Everybody else sent me a grad student. And I just didn't, I didn't feel comfortable. And I sat down with which ended up being one of my mentors. He was at the conference, Lowell Candidates, just phenomenal guy. And he's the guy who built OTRAC and handed it off to me. And he sat down and he's like, you know what? I'll hire you as a GA. I'll give you a GA right now if you wanted to come. And so they gave me a GA and it was for every nine hours I got, or for every, for every nine hours I took, I had to pay for three and they gave me six for free. I started working on his grant and he started paying for the other three. And then I did that as a GA and then I graduated, was doing research. I actually taught, this is probably the biggest part. Timing is everything for me. And, and this has nothing to do with me at all. And it was just impeccable timing was that a full professor left in May of the summer of my dissertation year. So I was all but dissertation. And so, as you know, in our business, in, when somebody leaves in May, it's almost impossible to fill that position mm -hmm. for an August launch. So they said, we're going to give you the full teaching load of the faculty who left since I was just doing my dissertation. And so I did that for a year and then they created a visiting line, not thinking I would get it. And they basically said the thing, you've already done it. You're already in this office. Would you be interested in applying for the visiting line? So I applied and got that, flipped it to a tenure, same process the next year. So became a teacher when I wanted to be a researcher. Now, fast forward two years into that, then we get into OTRAC. So I'm, I'm teaching and I'm thinking, I want to get out of teaching. And I want to get into all this research. So then I'm 
now traveling all over the state, not teaching. I'm doing all this research and it's not really deep research. It's more evaluation, right? An assessment of all these parks and it's fun. I'm on the road and all the time and I'm all over Oklahoma and staying in the parks every night, four days a week. And and then for about a year and a half, and I thought, you know what, I really miss teaching. And so I wanted to come back. <laughs> and so I can't make up my mind is really what happened. And then how I got back here is kind of the same. I actually interviewed at, at Lindenwood at university, and I got a job offer that day. And I'm on my way home on the plane, thinking about, I'm going to tell my wife we're moving back to St. Louis. And at the time, uh, my wife was pregnant with Landon, and we wanted to get closer to our, our parents. We were tired. We just, once you got into that phase, we're like, we want our kids to be around their grandparents. And so there was another factor there. And then I get a call from Terry Long about somebody leaving the day I was going to take the Lindenwood job, literally the day of. I get off the plane in Oklahoma, and I'm like, I'm, t- I'm going to call him tomorrow. I'm taking this job. We're moving to St. Louis. And I thought he was full of it. Turns out it was true. So four days later, I'm in Maryville interviewing the same day that they're interviewing Provost. Tim Mote was interviewing the same day. So my interview was like, <laughs> and then the next day I'm hired, and I'm like, here we, I'm, we're moving to Maryville. So because and part of it was because I wanted to get back into the classroom and teach and that was in and so we start I started here in 2014. Talk to me about teaching. So I think there's a little known kind of divide there between the teaching and research. It's not little known in our neck of the woods, but if you're a student and you're going here like teaching research. Talk to me about the skills that make you a good researcher. Um, what kinds of things are interesting to researchers versus what does the teaching side of life look like a little more? Here's my philosophy of how I handle my classroom. I call it in-search. Institutional research and teaching, okay? And I I made that up and it's patent pending. (laughs) I firmly believe that it is important to have all three. So the service that I do, the research that I'm doing has to yield and lend itself into what I teach so that it can change and mold with how things change. I know that a lot of people don't share that and some disciplines don't like some things just don't change. Right. And ours, we are so, I say, I don't like the word trendy, but we change all the time because things change, whether it's laws or, or statutes or whether it's uh, funding models or uh, certification requirements, whatever it is, they change. And I feel like it's my obligation to know those, carry those same credentials to show the students that I have it. Why would I be asking you to do it? Uh, if I learned anything in the military, it's, I would never, ask you to do something I would not do myself. So I went and got a certification and I, I got the level of certification that I should have had probably four years before to show that, look, I have this, this is why you should have it. And then I've actually been through that process. Um, the research part, everybody has their skill set. Mine turned out to be, ironically enough, was that I, and I still get this when I serve on dissertation committees for, for schools, which I do, I'm very fortunate to do that, is statistics and methodology of research design. I'm less strong at synthesizing literature to build those, but if you give me that, I'm pretty good at telling you what type of methods work, what type of methods you should use for your sample, what type of sample you should use, and then what the rules are for how you can analyze that data. So for me, it's more of the systematic part, and what I found is that most people struggle with the, the, the stats like aligning those. So I've made a research living, so to speak, on consulting or being a part of those, helping people to analyze that information. And also, here's my, my take on the research. Just sit down and write. And it's so simple that people, I don't know, there's this fear of writing. Um, I have a strong publication background because one, it's about the research. And this is the part in the podcast where I'm going to say something. This has a lot of controversy in, in our area. 
part of the publication process is like anything else. You need to understand the process, right? So I submit the manuscript. It goes to an editor who's volunteering to edit. But the pressure in this situation is not on me. It's on the editor because the editor now sends it out to three experts. Blind review, right? And the editor receives all that feedback and two of them are great. And then there's, there's reviewer three, right, who just carved it up. So that puts the editor in a really awkward position to say yes or no. So all the pressure in this scenario has nothing to do with my manuscript. It's all about the editor letting it into the journal for people to read because if it gets in and people disagree with it, they're not coming to me as the author. They're going to the editor. I've been an editor, trust me. <laughs> so the pressure lies on that. So once you understand the game that you're playing, you can write your manuscripts to mold itself, to fit itself into whatever those journals are. And so my best advice to people is before I publish in any of the journals or look at any journals, I go read four or five articles in there and you can kind of see a theme. And then that's how you write your research around that. As far as doing the, the data collection, there's not a whole lot, you know, being creative and finding a passion for what you do. It's pretty easy when you start to build a stair step. Like a lot of mine is in um, service learning and volunteering, experiential learning related to older adults. So not a whole lot of that changes, but you can look at different uh, models and different metrics and different theories and, and things like that, which you learn, you know, through doctoral school and through research. So when I tell talk to undergrad students, like, find a passion for something you're interested in. You know, if it's in our areas, a lot of times it's sports. Like, well, what do you want to know? Like, what's, what, what are you curious about that you want to test? And then we can work backwards from. Was that what your dissertation was? What was the Mine, title of your dissertation? It was, uh, it was on exercise and depression. So what I did was you can buy the book on Amazon. So with Christmas coming, those royalties are extremely important. Go <laughs> exercise and depression is the name of the book, uh, but it is basically the dissertation. And here's what I did. I took a, an experimental group and a control group in two different long-term care facilities. I measured their depression levels over the holidays, which is usually higher, and they were even. And then what I did is I had, I hired, I got a grant to hire a, uh, he was a bodybuilder, his name's Weston. He went in and did all of the exercise programs for the experimental group. And the control group got their regular programming. And so I wanted to see if utilizing, and they were exercise bands. So I measured three different levels of bands. So it was very, they were all compartmentalized so that there was no wavering on whether, whether it was about being happy or not. And so we would basically implement this program for nine weeks, or 12 weeks. And I measured every three weeks, their depression level, both groups. And the experimental group, went down. And my theory was, the self-determination theory, was that if we, um, it was Bandura, is like if the environment was in line with, with their cognitive belief that they could do it, then they would start to believe, build confidence. And so they got stronger physically, but I wasn't really concerned about that. Over 12 weeks, just by participating in the program, this group's depression level on the Beck depression inventory went down statistically significant compared, and the control group stayed the same. It peaked up a little bit, right around Christmas, which was normal, and then basically leveled off. So if you were to look at the lines, it was pretty flat, and this one was a dive. Hmm. So we basically built a model, exercise model, to suggest that if you have a high group of people who are at risk for depression or, or are statistically on this instrument suffering from depression, this type of program, and it wasn't just like a workout where you shot, like every, we had themes, like the first three weeks, everybody got to pick their own music. And so we were trying to personalize it to set up like empathy or to to spark um, nostalgia for some people. So somebody got to pick their own music from like the 30s, right? And so we, we wanted to determine if, will they still exercise if they're listening to the music they love, will that make them happier? 
and in this case, it makes them not happier, but less depressed, I guess is the term. So that was a dissertation. It was a lot of fun to do. And to be honest, Weston did most of the work because he did all the <laughs> 12 weeks. Well, I wanted to be impartial. Like at first I was going to do it. And then I got a grant for, I think we paid him 10 grand. It was a small grant, but it actually helped because I'm like, I don't want to be the person there because I think that will create the bias. And then when we published it, I published it a couple of times in different areas about the program and then about the study and then in the book. Uh, and I still get calls about it, which is kind of, you know, it's always flattering to hear people use your program. So, so. it has a big sciencey title, but in reality, it's just exercise and depression among older adults in <laughs> long term care. Title. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know what I mean? Your committees, <laughs> you'll get it. It's- so you mentioned grants and that's one of the classes I know you teach on campus and I encourage yeah. a lot of our students to take. We had Ty Parsons on his podcast where he talks about that, but talk to us about grants in that class and teaching people about grants. I think that's such an important skill for a lot of our majors here. It's growing tremendously. You know, I was so lucky. Um, I didn't have a lot of formalized grant writing training. It really starts with an idea, I think, in my opinion. Like, you got to have an idea and just kind of put it in a box of, like, what you want to use it for. Now, I've had a lot of experiences of being on the opposite side, which really taught me more about how to write them. And I've realized that it's a little bit of a mixture of creative writing and you know, a little bit of passionate writing versus, and in relationship to scientific writing where, you know, you want something and you want to make it tug at your heartstrings. And so that's what I really enjoy about it. I kind of find it as a challenge, but when I took on the class um, and we've had great success in those class, in that class, as far as profession-based experiences of people getting, you know, the campus trails on campus are, came out of that class as well as an ops class help us build it. So we wrote the grant and the part and the contract and the partnership from the first grant writing class and then we used the ops class a few years later to actually build it, make it ADA accessible, look at signage and collaborate with people in the institution in the city. So it was pretty awesome. Um, but that's just one scenario. But as far as the grant writing started with an idea and then I went through some like USA grant writing and I've, I've worked with Ty and talked to Ty multiple times and he's, you know, he, that's what he does for a living. So he, mm-hmm. he, he, he's a phenomenal grant writer. So the class is set up as an entry level and when people take the class, they, they, here's what I always hear is that it's not what I expected. I expected to be able to write a grant. And I go, I build it in a way that all of the assignments are about the process. Once you learn how to write and rewrite, and here's the key to grant writing, in my opinion. One, you have to know what your idea is and be able to articulate it, but you need to read. And this is about writing in general, in my opinion. Uh, I'm a good writer, not because it's natural. I'm not a naturally good writer, but I read a lot. And what I found is the more you read good writing, the better writer you become. So reading helps you to write. Writing does not help you to be a better writer. Reading good writing helps you be a better writer. And so that's really helped me with grant writing is I've read a lot of really good grants and a lot of grants that you can see holes in them when you're used to reading a bunch. And, and that gets you in trouble when you have a bunch to – when you're on a committee, it, once again, it comes back to knowing the game. When you're on a committee and you have um, – I was on, I'm on the DNR scorecard board and we have grants come through like, oh, we had 1100 submissions. So how do you comb through 1100? Well, if they don't follow the criterion, a really good easy way is to just eliminate the ones that didn't follow the rules, whether it was intentional or not. And so things we teach in the grant writing classes, build yourself a checklist, build yourself a timeline, you know, get organized, simple things, but those things can eliminate you when you forget to lick, when you forget to put it in a manila envelope, like we've thrown those out. Beautiful grant, perfectly written, and it's in a gray envelope or something, and it clearly says we need it in Manila because it could end up in a different file or whatever. That's gone. you know. And so people don't think that it's that nitty-gritty. And with the way budgets are and the way tax revenues are down and all these, these negative things, the seeking of grant funding 
is going to be even higher and the increase of nonprofits who seek those. So the competition for money is growing tremendously. So it's the supply and demand. Um, what I like about increased competition is that the quality and caliber gets better. So it's a give or take. But on the other hand, you know, you want a little bit of competition. You'd love to give money to everybody who wants it. At least I would, but. In theory, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, wouldn't you love to support everything? I would. And the funny thing is those skills are very similar to what we tell people when they're looking for a job or an internship too. Like, you know, if they have 400 applications for one internship, one little mistake and you're out of the pile because that makes my job easier. I only have 399 now. It's not so, personal. Right. Yeah. yeah, you're right. So same thing, process matters. So I would also argue that uh, once you have hired, uh, once again, this goes back to reading the grants. Once mm -hmm. you've hired people, then automatically you're like, oh, nope, nope. Like you just start looking at resumes and they don't have to look a certain way, but you can definitely tell like, not going to hire that person, not going to hire that. Just because you're looking at it from that reversed viewpoint, mm -hmm. you're not looking at it as a person who's trying to show their skills. You're looking at it as someone who's trying to interpret what that person is giving you. Um, yep. So I, th I think hiring people is actually the best way to uh, learn how to write your own resume, mm -hmm. honestly. So. And um, with grants, it's taking feedback, getting feedback and, you, and applying it. For every one I've gotten funded, I think I've probably had five rejections. And, you know, I'm okay with that. But I've learned something from them. We kind of try to keep a little bit of a focus on maybe job seekers or job uh, people who are looking maybe for a new job or who are going to graduate and start looking for a job. Do you have any wisdom for those types of, of people? Get on it early. I mean, my uh, advice is to – I search for jobs all the time. Not because I want to leave, because I, but because, and I'm not looking to leave or anything, but I like to be aware of the market, what kind of jobs there are. And I look at things like in our profession, I know that there was a 44% increase in jobs in the last two years that have the word sports and administrator in them. So the titles are adjusting to pay scales to, and, that, and as far, and I don't think students need to know that, but what they need to be aware of is how to align those things. And I, I always tell people, and I'm not an expert on resumes, but look, I pull three or four job descriptions and may I go through with a highlighter and highlight the power words. What are the verbs that they're, what are the actions? And then everything you build in your cover letter and everything you build in your resume, as long as it's honest, you want to match your, your words and your verbiage because somebody's sitting around a table throwing out these skills. And when they throw out action verbs, they're picturing them doing it. And so when I say, I want you to be, to, to have strong communication skills, they're picturing in their mind what that means. They're, they're putting the visual to the word. Like when I say I want somebody to be strong, the minute I say that, everybody has a visual of what it means to be strong. It could be a bicep. It could be a piece of steel. It could be cement. It's, you're picturing something. So when you use that word in the, all of your stuff, the person who's come up with that is going to automatically connect to you on a different level. And then it's your job in the interview to figure out how to align your, what they're visualizing and, and you're visualizing. Tim Motay gave me, gave me great advice. Two pieces here. One, always put your name out and onto leaders table because they're so busy. You got to keep your name out there. They're not going to come and find you. That's one. But number two is that everybody who's hiring somebody is looking for somebody to help them fix a problem, solve a problem, or do something. And your job is to demonstrate how you can help them do that without making them work harder. And I thought, that's a really good advice for anybody coming out of college. I wish somebody would have broken it down for me like that, as opposed to there's going to be 100 people in the pool, look around you, these are your competition. That makes it more about them and really the ownership 
is about you. So when people come back and go, I've applied for five jobs, gotten interviews, and haven't gotten it, that tells me it's something about your materials. It's something about your interview. It's, there's something in there, and it's not about somebody else. That's the first thing I tell students, too. I literally print off the paper and have the highlighter, and I highlight all the words, and I've done it every single time. Um, and and they, but they cold. laugh at me. They're like, I didn't know that you actually did that like in real life. And I was like, in real life, I print off the paper mm-hmm. and I use the highlighter every time. Just use your highlighter. It works. Mm-hmm. I tell them to call too. Uh, same thing with grant. I go, you increase your opportunity to get a grant by 300% when you make a call. And I go, I'll even call if I know the answer to the question just to make contact. Mm-hmm. People love to feel wanted. And it's the same reason why people get upset. They take it personally if somebody doesn't come to their class, right? Because you don't appreciate all of the work I've done and, and it becomes, per- even though it's not personal, it's the same way when it comes to jobs. People want to be sought after and know that you have a passion to, to work there. Learn the mission and decide if you like it or not. Don't try to change who you are to fit somebody else's mission because it's super uncomfortable because it's pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. But like if you have a passion, you know, like if it's student success, every student every day, that's pretty easy to make a case when you, everything you talk about is how, how to serve a student and going above and beyond and being, being available after hours. And you can sprinkle that through everything you do if you really believe that that's, you know, where your passion lies. And so mm-hmm. it's easy for people like us because we do that. But depending on what the job is, making sure that those things, like I, I tell our seniors, one of the not a mistake, but be careful of this. The first job offer you get is not an indication of success out of college, and you, should, you shouldn't have to settle. You can interview and get four or five different job offers if you want to and be picky enough if you want to. But if you're okay settling for that first one, that's fine, but just know you don't have to. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of the culture we've ingrained in people is that they're going to graduate, they got to get a job, and I don't know where it comes from, probably parents, and I get that. But if you get on it early enough, you can put yourself in a position where – you might be able to to choose and be marketable and learn from bad experiences. I tell you what, I, I had some, my first interview was so bad and I, I, but I grew tremendously from, from that experience. Yeah. I always tell people too, especially students who have never been in an interview situation, you're interviewing them. Maybe mm-hmm. you don't want to work for them. Like you, you still have the choice. They may offer you the job, but you have the choice to take mm-hmm. the job. I'm glad you said that. My first interview after my doctoral program, I was so nervous. It was, I don't want to say the school, but it was in Illinois somewhere. And um, I had like four questions. And so I remember going through and I was, a, I'll never forget that my, my interview at Lindenwood, I was sitting there and I knew of the people, but I didn't know who they were. Like we hadn't connected directly. And I was going through afterward in my interview at the hotel. Like I asked 62 questions and they asked me four. And I was like, I spent the day basically just in two days, academics are the full thing, right? Just basically running them through interviewing them. And I thought that was kind of when I knew it felt like I had the job. I basically was interviewing you for this position. And I was, I had grown and had a lot more experiences and kind of more confident and had a better grasp. What does it mean to you to be a bear cat? For me, it means doing whatever it takes. Since I've been here in 2014, I have had four different provost fellow positions that had completely different descriptions. I have been a graduate coordinator of our program. I'm serving now as the assistant director. I serve as a fellow for institutional strategy for the president's cabinet. I have had nothing but opportunity to serve. Um, I'm a contact tracer. I mean, I could go on down the line of things that are not, I'm on the chamber board for the city. Things that aren't my job, but are my responsibility to the people 
that we serve to the people in our community, to the students, and to the employees, and just to Northwest in itself. You know, culture eats strategy for lunch or breakfast, however you want to take the saying. And so it's important to maintain that culture. So in my opinion, being a Bearcat means doing whatever it takes. And that for me is I like to carry that burden, if you want to call it a burden. I like it as see it as an opportunity because there are people out there who just can't. And so if that means I have to help you carry that load, I will do that until I can't carry it. And I'm hoping that other people will then help me carry it. That's how I see uh, my relationship with the institution and at least my family. You know, I'm invested in this more for not just because it's what we do for a living, but because I love what Northwest stands for. And sometimes it's hard. Being in a pandemic is hard. Sometimes it's great when you're winning national title. Like it's an ebb and flow. For me, it's doing whatever it takes, whenever it takes. You know, this will pass. This too will pass. And we'll, we'll get the sleep we missed when, when we have the time to get it. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And um, once a Bearcat, always a Bearcat. Excellent. All right. Awesome. Thank you for being our guest. Thank you. All right. Well, that will do it for another episode of Behind the Bearcat. And we'll talk to you next time. Thank you.